Hey folks, you are of course listening to the Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. We're one of several very good and excellent left-wing podcasts on Harbinger, and a new episode that I want to recommend is the latest from the Forgotten Corner. Uh, friends of the show, Jeremy Appel and Scott Schmidt, talk with Dr. Gosha Gasperovich and her worries about a third wave as the hyperinfectious B117 strain of COVID takes hold in Alberta right as the government is uh, opening up, quote-unquote, the economy. And that's the kind of content you'll get at Harbinger. We're challenging right-wing and liberal corporate media dominance with a political point of view you won't find anywhere else. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwachewa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territory. Joining me today is our friend, the man behind the boards and the Adobe Audition account, the the editor of the Progress Report, and my friend and colleague, Jim Story. Jim, welcome back. Hey, glad to be here. Although I wish we had something more interesting to talk about today. The uh, budget's a little dreary this year. It's dreary every year. Uh, I I can never recall in my lifetime a budget that I was like, woohoo, uh, everything I ever wanted out of a government. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, no doubt, but uh, jury in the sense of not being super exciting in any particular direction, despite the uh, the change in tone, which I'm sure we'll get to very quickly, this is really a business as usual budget. Yeah, it's a budget that kind of pleases no one. You know, it's the, it's the neutral character from Futurama. It has no strong opinions. It's um, yeah, it's 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 a whole it's a big soupy lump and mess of like bad bad politics. But um, before we get into the details of the budget, I want to ask you about your very first budget lockup. You took part in uh, you know, your very first budget lockup. What, what were your thoughts? Well, uh, they didn't take any of my questions, which didn't surprise me. And uh, <laughs> it was very difficult to go through a day without posting, which also didn't surprise me. Beyond that, I don't really have a lot to say about the process. I know that the biggest thing is the seven hours without posting is uh, it's a lot for you and me to just go that long without, without letting the world know what we think about X and, but we were able to, to hold it in. We followed the rules of the embargo. We get to go to the next one. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, let's get to the budget reaction and breakdown. What, uh, what's the kind of top level narrative that you're pulling out of this one aside from, boring business as usual. Give me something else. Well, you had, uh, when we were talking about this in our post, our, our first post about the budget yesterday, you had a nice little line in there about the the UCP pretending to be the NDP, but not doing a very good job of it. And uh, I think that that really is what we see in this budget. Uh, over the past uh, couple of weeks, you've really seen Kenny and Taves and those guys moderate their language around cuts their austerity language and replace it with a lot of talk about, you know, now is not the time for cuts. Now is not the time for taxes. Uh, now is the time to keep the ship afloat, so to speak. But the budget does not really match those statements. Uh, cuts do continue uh, apace in this budget, especially to uh, post-secondaries and to municipalities. Uh, I think it's uh Perhaps the UCP felt like those were areas where they could get away with continuing the cuts, whereas health is getting a lot of attention right now. There's a lot of focus on it. 
Yeah. But even the health budget is not getting a significant top up. No, I mean the health thing is interesting, right? Because if you if you listen to them, they they kept saying we're funding healthcare, we're funding healthcare, we're funding healthcare, and it's like no one believes you, man. <laughs> like like if Rachel Notley, it's not even in the it's not in your budget documents that you published, right? Yeah. The uh, the number does not go up. The line does not go up. The uh, the increase in healthcare funding in this year is pretty modest. What was it around 900 mil? Uh, which sounds like a lot, but the health budget is massive. It is the single largest item in the provincial budget by a, a very large margin. And then after this year, they've uh, they've got a, a freeze, a spending freeze planned through until 2024. You would think that in the wake of this awful pandemic that uh, apparently completely blindsided Alberta because we're dealing with it so poorly, that it would have highlighted some areas that need to be improved in our healthcare system. You know, it would have demonstrated the need for a little more resilience, uh, a system that is not kind of patched together with duct tape and twine and kind of rickety just holding on, but a system that is tough uh, and and that can weather storms like this pandemic. Uh, the UCP don't agree. That's uh, that's not how they feel about it. Yeah, I mean. Just like no one believed Rachel Notley when she was all raw, raw pipelines. We love pipelines. We're going to build pipelines. We're the best pipeline party. No one believes Jason Kenney when he says, you know, <laughs> that we love healthcare, that we're going to fund healthcare. Uh, you know, the you got to think about when this budget was made, right? Like when the decisions were happening and the decisions were happening in December, you know, height of the pandemic, worst of the shutdown. You know, we were seeing you know, nearly 2000 cases a day, you know, the deaths were peaking back then. And, and so we get this bad impersonation, you know, of like midterm NDP <laughs> from, from Jason Kenny and Travis Taves. And, um, it doesn't please anyone. It doesn't please the psychos in his base and it doesn't please the people who are still, you know, uh, very justifiably angry that they are going to get laid off or have their jobs privatized or have their pay wages possibly cut. Um, despite the fact that, that, you know, the nurses and the lab techs and the janitors, of the hospitals and like those public sector workers, those are the people who got us through this pandemic. And so, um, yeah, it's really, I mean, this is just like a theme at every single Alberta budget ever, which if you cover more of these, Jim, uh, and get into the lockup and kind of get into the data, you will just see that it is just, it is always the same. Every single Alberta government forever until we die is just going to keep kicking the can down the road and pray for rain, you know? There's a lot of having your cake and simultaneously attempting to eat it in this budget. Like there are, uh, there are government departments where they're claiming that they're going to hire a couple thousand more staff and simultaneously they're saying they're going to reduce compensation across the board in those departments. So I, I don't think anyone's going to be particularly pleased that they're not getting laid off if their wages are getting slashed to accommodate, you know, ex expanded, uh, expanded hires. It's not great. It's not great for anybody. No, like you said, it is very much a, a kicking of the can down the road to, uh, to um, Tome, uh, Trevor Tome up in Calgary, the friend uh, of the, the center, right? Yes. Yes. Economist. We, we dearly love him uh, and his analysis. Uh, yeah, he absolutely loves it. When you reply to his tweets, I, I recommend that everyone out there engage <laughs> with him on Twitter uh, as much as possible. Uh, he's a big fan of fans of this program. 
in particular. Uh, Tome estimates that if the uh, the relatively high resource prices continue, uh, because oil and gas have kind of ticked up over the past uh, month or so, uh, mostly due to reduced uh, supply, because a lot of things were shut down during the COVID. Uh, basically, if everything works out in the absolute best possible way, if there is not another disaster, if there is not another unexpected uh, economic disturbance, and resource prices stay high, uh, then the budget gets kind of close to balancing itself in 2024 if they don't do anything else. Uh, and that seems to be what this government is banking on. They, uh, they are planning for the absolute best case scenario. They don't really have any uh, ideas in place for what they're going to do if everything doesn't line up perfectly. And that is uh, very typical of an Alberta government budget. You're, you're definitely right. That's uh, what the PCs were doing for years. It's what the NDP did when they were in power. And it seems to be uh, what the UCP are up to now, too. Yeah. I mean, not only is it is it pray for rain and just kick the can, but but it is just like actively d- refusing to engage with the question of like, what the hell do we do in Alberta if our if the, the, the you know, the golden goose, our oil and gas industry is just going to stop laying golden eggs and like. You just have to read the material of every oil and gas company that they send to their investors. Every oil and gas company that exists these days knows that they're not a long-term play, right? Their their pitch to investors is that we promise to return as much profits and as much cash to you via dividends and share buybacks as we possibly fucking can before we go under, right? Like everyone knows, there's not a long. The oil and gas is not a long-term play. <laughs> But but we still do not have a plan in Alberta, and nor nor does this government seem interested in diversifying away from oil and gas. There's a quote in Travis Tave's budget address that is like it is worth reading out because of how like hilarious and stupid it is. The, the quote is this: Some suggest diversifying the economy requires a transition from away from our transitional traditional sectors such as energy. Let me be clear, Mr. Speaker, that is not this government this government's position. <laughs> like, come on, man, come on. I mean, their ideology is quite simple and clean when you look at it, right? We will set up the conditions for private enterprise and the profit motive and entrepreneurs to show up and solve all our problems. If we do everything that the CFIB and the Chamber of Commerce want, we lower corporate taxes to nothing, we'll cut red tape, we will you know, absolutely clear a runway for whatever corporations say they want policy-wise. They think that this will somehow lead to, to them magically spending money. And it's like, no, they're just going the people at the top are just going to get richer. Like that's how this works. And whether it's, I mean, it's irrelevant whether it's venal or um, whether they actually believe it or not, like the outcome is the same, but like it's important to kind of call it what it is. And, and it's, it's magical thinking, right? Like it's, it's never, never worked anywhere. It's always been extremely successful at making rich people richer and fucking over everyone else. But there is, um, much more in this budget that we want to get to. I think that there's it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about the sectors that got it the worst, and that particularly is uh, post-secondary education and municipalities. Uh, I feel like ever since the Redford era, post-secondary uh, has just taken it on the chin over and over and over again. I mean, 
uh, do what's your what's your hot take on on uh, how post second what happened to what they did to post secondary, and uh, why they are the continual punching bag of the Alberta government. I mean, this is a classic case of the kid who keeps getting the shit kicked out of him at school because he never stands up to his bully. The uh, you know the students' unions are generally pretty tepid when it comes to criticizing the government. They are tepid. You don't Most have to say generally. The, you don't have to equivocate there. They are absolutely not interested in fighting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, half the time you've got those student councils filled up with kids in ties who want to become PCs, you know, <laughs> they, uh, they're, they're not uh, revolutionary types for the most part. The, uh, the boards too, the, um, they are continually filled with appointments of like well-connected good old boy types. And so obviously the boards are not going to scream and shout when the, uh, the establishment puts the screws down. No, not when Janet not, there not isn't when Janice a strong McKinnon is on constituency the board of the fighting back. <laughs> right? We'll compare and contrast the uh, the post-secondaries getting the shit kicked out of them in this budget yet again with the AMA, who looks like they have finally got what they wanted out of this government. Uh, doctor compensation is not gonna get uh, is not going to get ground down like was expected because the AMA went out there and they fought hard for a year and a half. And the AMA, I mean, we're talking about um, like wealthy, relatively wealthy people, doctors, porch uh, owners, is yeah, petty bourgeoisie for <laughs> the uh, the theory readers out there. These are not folks who are naturally uh, considered like allies of blue collar working class people, but. Uh, you know, when the AMA started screaming about how the doctors were all getting screwed, working class people all were all, you know, we all got in line and helped helped out and helped support that AMA campaign. I know the um the opposition were also very into supporting that AMA campaign. Uh you had a lot of doctors publicly just throwing up their arms and leaving the province, either in protest or out of pure necessity. Uh, it was a it was a good powerful campaign. The AMA won. They fought. They fought hard, and they they got something for it. Meanwhile, these post secondaries, they, they don't fight. They uh, they're very poorly organized. The people holding positions of influence and authority, both in the student body level and in the um, like the faculty and board level, generally don't have it in them to fight. Uh, there's no You've sense of struggle. Few... There's no history of striking. You know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah. you're starting from scratch yes. if, if you do want to build that, right? And and I think the accounting on just how badly the unis are getting it and the universities and colleges are getting it in this budget is still going to come out. I mean, we found a $135 million cut, but like based on some conversations I've had, we're really not going to know how bad it is until you get the kind of like institution by institution numbers out and the actual cuts are made real. So, it, and I think, I think the NDP had a $400 million cut. Like the numbers on this are bad. And it, again, it's incredibly short-sighted. You want to attract and retain uh, people early in their careers to be, you know, people to live and work here and raise families here. You need good universities. And we had good universities. And over the past decade, we've decided to not have good universities. It's more than just short-sighted too. It's really in opposition to what the public generally wants uh, in regards to post-secondaries. Uh, free tuition, um, whether or not debts get erased, 
that's an incredibly popular policy proposal these days. Uh, a lot of people are very, very supportive of it. But what's going to happen with these universities when their provincial funding gets cut? Well, they're going to have to make up the gap by cranking tuition up, the absolute opposite of what everyone out there wants. There would be a lot of public support for the post-secondaries if they stood up and they fought. I think a lot of people would stand in solidarity with them. But because they don't stand up and fight, because they just roll over, they continue to get the shit kicked out of them, budget after budget after budget. Yeah, I mean, whether people would stand with them or not, I, I don't think anyone gives a shit if tuition goes up or if students have terrible learning conditions. Like, it's it's really up to them. Like, it's up to the students. It's up to the, the profs and the workers who work at these institutions. No one is going to come save you. You are going to have to come together and figure out how you're going to work together to, to actually, like, organize and put pressure on this government and make it hard for them to do this. Because if you don't, they will continue to do exactly what they have done for the past 10 years. The other big uh, kind of line item, the other ministry that really took it on the chin money-wise was municipal affairs. And this is essentially like, yeah. this is the the money that flows out to cities and municipalities. And based on some you know feedback I've gotten, you know, there's been a 25% cut to this municipal sustainability initiative that's going to occur over the next four years. I'm still kind of working to nail down what exactly this means. You've seen kind of Nenshi and Iveson cut, you know, they've cut interviews where they're mad about it, but I just feel that like both those guys seem to be on the way out and there's not really a lot of fire and energy to actually like fight with this government. I don't know. What do you think about this, Jim? I think that, I mean, first of all, just in kind of, top-down objective terms, these continued cuts to municipal funding are bad. They are very, very bad. Uh, and every year that these budgets get cut, the province gets in a more and more fucked up situation because important programs and services exist at the municipal level. A lot of things have been handed down to municipalities to handle. But under uh, Alberta laws, municipalities can't borrow, they can't go into deficit. So they're 100% reliant on funding coming in from other levels of government, uh, most of which comes down from the province. And this process of handing things to municipalities and saying, okay, you guys take care of this now with with your left hand and then slashing their budgets with the right hand is just kind of a an obfuscated, stealthy way of cutting programs and services. There are some important important things at the municipal level. One thing that Iveson was highlighting yesterday in his complaints was the budget for affordable housing. Uh, affordable housing, the, the province kicks a little bit of money into it, uh, even less in 2021 than they had previously. And th- like spending on affordable housing is very... Uh, it's very good. It is very good to properly fund this. I, I don't really know turns out, uh, turns how, out to, we, how to say we, it any more accurately than that. To live in houses, uh, we live in Alberta. It gets cold here in the winter. People need yeah, homes. It, it gets cold. But I, I think even speaking from a completely heartless, uh, compassionless point of view, even if you cut all of the misery and human suffering of being unhoused out of the equation, even if you're just looking at this from a kind of, uh, you know, no, no mercy, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. master lich, Travis Taves, dark sorcery perspective. <laughs> the, the numbers just work out. 
like you know you it is it is just wise to get people off the street because it's very expensive uh, to maintain high levels of inequality and high levels of homelessness in your society those people end up having to resort to emergency services a lot and it is really taxing for the system when you could save a lot of money and reduce aggregate human misery by a great amount by just putting roofs over their heads and if there is not enough housing stock to go around well then you fucking you pay some borrow. people to build some more you and those fucking, are jobs you borrow to build it i mean you're if you if you came to this podcast expecting numbers about debts and deficits uh no we i do not give a shit about the debt or the deficit it's high uh it needs to be high we're in the middle of a pandemic it should be higher it's yeah. precisely for the reasons jim has laid out there are homeless thousands of homeless people in our province um build them homes now i don't care build them and it is more expensive it is more expensive in the long term to allow these uh these inefficiencies with our programs and services uh and to allow things like extreme poverty and um poor social determinants of health to exist than it is to put up with with more borrowing costs like the deal is just better uh, it is just better straight up to invest this money and take care of these problems. And then as an added bonus, you also save human lives and make humans much happier, which is also a thing that governments should do. Agreed. Okay. Um, There's Muni and Posec. They're the two that got it worse. But I mean, the other group that's getting it bad uh, is workers, specifically public sector workers. Um, you know, you look at the budget documents, you know, Jim and I spent a whole seven hours in lockup, sweaty, glistening, you know, going through spreadsheets and tables and data. And, you know, what we found was that the government of Alberta expects to be paying more than $1 billion less in public sector compensation from the year we're in now to next year. How they're going to do that, not explained. But there's really only a couple of ways to do it. Uh, and it's all of the stuff that they've previewed before, right? It's layoffs, it's privatization, it's wage cuts, legislated wage cuts. And, um, you know, <laughs> this is again, the, the paradox that Jim spoke about at the top. They're like, oh yeah, we're, we're, uh, they're, they're, um, we're, uh, not going to cut people. We're actually going to give a short-term bump in funding to healthcare, but we're somehow going to pay less in compensation next year. It's uh, it, it's absolutely wild. I know the Alberta NDP has a number that says fifteen thousand layoffs are coming. Uh, I think that's an expra- extrapolation from statements from Taves about how they're cutting the public sector by seven point seven percent. Whether it's fifteen thousand, whether it's five thousand, I mean, there's really no way to do what the government wants without laying off the people who got us through this pandemic: the nurses, the lab techs, the paramedics, the janitors, the hospital workers the laundry folks. Uh, there's just, there's no other way around it. You could cut the wages of every single public sector worker in Alberta by half and still have a $5 billion deficit. Again, I don't care about deficits. It's just to illustrate the size of the number. Um, uh, you know, how is Kenny going? How do you think Kenny is going to get a $1 billion less in public sector compensation by next year, Jim? I don't think he's going to. I think he's going to send people to the negotiating table with orders to grind down workers' salaries uh, in an attempt to get there. And uh, I think he's going to have a full-on labor revolt on his hands, and he's not going to be able to do it. I think it's a false promise. 
Yeah, I mean, I again, he's overconfident he, to think that he can grind those budgets down that much. Uh, layoffs are more likely to happen than uh, than wage cuts, I think. Uh, so if the budgets do shrink, it's going to be either through attrition or through the elimination of positions. But uh, he's absolutely not going to drive salaries down enough to hit that number. Uh, because if he tries to, he's going to get his ass kicked by the unions. Yeah, I mean, teachers have taken zeros the past whatever, eight or nine years. Um, uh, I was about to say by no fault of their own, absolutely fault of their own. They took zeros for the past eight or nine years. Other um, uh, healthcare unions, AUPE, HSAA, uh, you know, they've seen very marginal increases over the, they they took either, either nothing. Well, if their staff roles are going to be expanded at the very same time that the funding is reduced, uh, then it's not going to be zeros that are on the table for them this year. The government is going to be asking them to take like minus fives, minus tens. Yeah. And that's pretty big. And that's not going to fly. No, I don't think there's any appetite for any large public sector union to take a five or 10% rollback in negotiations. They're going to want inflation at the very mm-hmm. least. They're going to want one and a half, one and a half, one and a half. One and, a half. and that's incredibly fair. Uh, these are the people who got us through the pandemic. Uh, pay them. Pay them more. They're clearly worth I it. Think I think this projection from the government uh, about reducing public sector compensation by one and a half billion is about as optimistic as their projections of the uh, the resource prices last year. Like it's a fiction. They know that they can't do it. They're just making shit up. It's as optimistic as their uh, their loss estimates on Keystone XL. How about we segue into that one? Um, yeah, let's talk about that pipe. There was a love talking about pipe. Can't do pipeline politics enough. So conspicuously not in any budget table, not booked in any way was Keystone XL. It did get one page in the budget. It got a page that kind of explained the, the, you know, what they were willing to disclose. But again, when you look at all of the numbers that say debt deficit, blah, 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 there's like an extra $1.3 billion loss on Keystone XL that was not booked. And uh, a lot of reporters were asking for more and more details on this. A lot of reporters were asking for more and more details on this during the budget lockup yesterday. And the excuse that we got from the uh, the officials during the technical briefing uh, repeatedly, every time somebody pressed for these details is, well, principles of good accounting say that we can't put that those numbers in the table yet because we're just not sure how big the loss was. We're looking at all our options. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, the funny thing about this is the devil is really in the details. So the hilarious part to come out of this little one-page disclosure is that the vast majority of that $1.3 billion loss that was booked, 870 or 890-some million, went to Keystone XL in January of 2021. That's two Hey, months. Duncan, when was, uh, when was Joe Biden elected? <laughs> yeah, good question. Yeah, it's when did he November. win the election? Yeah, beginning of when was when was that American election? Was that was that Valentine's Day? I think it was a little earlier. I think it was before Christmas, right? I distinctly remember an American president election on November fourth or something. Uh, early, you know, you'd think that uh, knowing that the uh, the guy who had been saying for an entire year that he was going to cancel that pipeline immediately, the guy who was the vice president of uh, the person who originally vetoed that pipeline. Uh, you think that uh, seeing him win the election would maybe give you a little pause about throwing a billion and a half dollars to TC Energy for a project that was obviously doomed. Yeah. 
and and the fact the fact that nearly nine hundred million dollars went out the door on this project in fucking January is monstrous incompetence. Uh, the the if if Jason Kenney had only lost three hundred four hundred million on this thing in an equity investment, whatever. I think. I mean, it still would be fucking terrible and stupid and a clear and a, and a clear waste of money. But the scale of money that we're talking about here <laughs> is fucking insane, and and it gets even more insane when you when you consider something that is is in the news a little less than the Keystone XL pipeline, but is more money, and it's these crude by rail contracts, and the minutia of this is not super important, but essentially. Rachel Notley in the final nine months of her term kind of signed a bunch of crude by rail contracts in order to move bitumen or move oil product on rail cars for reasons. I, I don't even really want to get into or debate the reasons, but that happened. Those contracts were signed. It occurred. Jason Kenney, you know, as is his ideology, thought this was a terrible idea, campaigned against it, won the election. And, you know, shouted from the rooftops as loud as if, if anyone wanted to hear that he hated these things and he was going to sell them as soon as he possibly could. And we thought we were free of these crude by rail contracts. There was even a, pr- a press release that went out in a press conference that happened in early 2020 where Jason Kenney said that we were we had gotten rid of all of them. Turns out um, that's not the case. Forty percent of the crude by rail capacity that you know, was, was signed in these contracts is, was, was only 40% was gotten rid of. There is still the majority 60% of that crude by rail contract capacity still exists and is presumably costing this government money. And what it's costing us is again, huge $2.3 billion. I, I am just a dumbass journalist. I failed math a bunch in high school, but there was a thing that happened on the, the kind of the, um, government briefing call uh, in the lockup that I think is worth going over. And that was the the pointy head guy, whoever they had from energy to answer questions. He, uh, he was asked, what's the total like liability? Like what's our, what's the, what was the worst case scenario from these um, oil by rail, these crew by rail contracts, if they had, if they had actually been executed. And he was like, Oh yeah, our, uh, our estimate was it would have cost us, to $2.7 billion to just actually run it. So our total exposure would have been $400 million. I got to say, a 400 million, again, I'm just a dumbass journalist. I I failed math a bunch of times, but a $400 million loss is a lot better than a $2.3 billion loss. A little bit, and a little bit, and and I think even the, uh, the, bell, even the oil and gas sec. producers would have preferred it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you can't unring the bell. You can't go back in time and run the program because Jason Kenny obviously stopped it as soon as he came in. But that's the cost. That's that Jason Jason Kenny's ideology cost us Albertans one point nine billion dollars. At least, at least, at least one point. Yeah, those contracts are still remember, yeah. That's the that's the worst case scenario that they're quoting you there. Those oil by rail contracts might have not lost much at all. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this in any other world, this billion dollar fucking boondoggle would like would bring down a government. Um, But it's just like one of like half a dozen or to a dozen scandals that is just currently plaguing them. And this crude by rail thing doesn't even get the nearly the amount of attention it deserves, considering how much money goes out the door. You know, not to mention, I mean, uh, the other thing that that is just this corporate handout that continues to cost all of us money is this refinery that was built. And it's just like, 
<laughs> we didn't really get a good accounting of it this year because they booked most of the losses last year. But um, this this Sturgeon refinery that the government is a partner in is also just a giant money pit. Exactly the kind of shit I was talking about earlier with governments talking about these these nebulous terms like the economy and diversification and uh, trusting that the average listener is going to incorrectly hear jobs. They're going to hear jobs for your family when they say that stuff. If the government really wanted to create jobs for your family, it could easily hire you to do something. Yeah. But instead, it, it gets obfuscated through these these pie in the sky deals uh, that they, you know, they fall flat. Usually if the governments are lucky, they fall flat a few years down the line after the people responsible for signing the papers have moved on to something else. And so they, there are no consequences for them. But just imagine if any governing party, whether the PCs, the NDP or the UCP had just, had just put all of this theatrics around pipelines, around diversification around building the economy aside for a few years and just worked on actual material issues that are impacting actual Albertans. Like the, that 2.3 billion or so lost on the oil by rail contracts, uh, all of the money lost on the pipelines. Imagine if that money had just been thrown in a pot to solve Alberta's housing crisis. They could have solved that problem by now. Instead, we're, we're hurling money into these furnaces for no fucking reason. It's infuriating. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of just throwing money into a furnace, we learned of a brand new war room. Uh, baby war room. War room war, yeah. War baby room. War room, room 2.0. Baby war room. It's called the uh, ESG Secretariat, the Environmental, Social, and Governance Secretariat. ESG is a term you'll find in investment circles. Um, uh, it's very popular right now. You know, BlackRock is this uh, you know, investment company that has trillions of dollars under management has made a big deal about ESG. You, you have this whole massive section of, of capital and capitalism that has, you know, made the decision that it's, it's better to invest in things that are, that'll kill us marginally slower. And it, it's real. I mean, the investment decisions are being affected by it. You know, and uh, and Jason Kenny kind of very famously described it as a flavor of the month back in 2019 in a meeting with the Globe and Mail editorial board, and uh, and now, <laughs> you know, this is this is ostensibly why the War Room was created, right? Uh, was to burnish the reputation of of Canada's um, oil and gas. You know, the whole ethical oil argument. We are we are good. Canada is good. Alberta is good because we are good. Our oil is good. You should buy it. And I mean, I don't have to belabor the argument, but it's obviously a stupid and reductive one, right? Um, and uh, yeah, this uh, this this ESG secretariat is attached to the premier's office, um, and we get another baby war room because Tom Olson is just bad at at his job. It is incredible if you pour through all of the the documents. How much funding in Alberta actually goes to giving, uh, paying for free work for the oil and gas industry, especially on the PR side? You don't just have the war room and the baby war room, but then Alberta Energy does a ton of this stuff. Uh, Alberta Environment even gets mixed up in it sometimes. The AER 
is uh, is out there doing free PR for we them. We have Invest well. Alberta, which is another kind of war room esque, you know, corporation, weird offshoot corporation that's supposed to attract investment to Alberta somehow. None of these efforts ever get anything done. Uh, they're just. I can't even describe them as slush funds because nobody's really getting any benefit out of the the money aside from, I guess, a a few comms people get cushy jobs, but it's all just a gigantic waste. Uh, It is an example, I think, of how all of our provincial governments here in Alberta, regardless of party, have come up against this problem of our oil and gas industry slowly lurching towards obsolescence, and they don't have an actual answer for it but they know that they need to look like they're doing something. They know that they need to look like they're trying. And so they come up with these, with these, these, these things, the, the ESG secretariat, the war room. Uh, it's all, it's all theater though, right? Uh, it doesn't really accomplish anything. The money is wasted. Yeah. And it's just a long-term uh, a trend, right? Like big capital, big pools of capital that look, look at the oil sands and they are not interested in taking that risk. And so they strike it from their investments. Like you've seen it, you know, Shell got out of the oil sands a few years back. Uh, Total, the French super major, you've got the Norway, the Norwegian investment fund. I mean, you can keep doing this. You know, it's, uh, you're looking at trillions of dollars under management that are looking at the oil sands and saying, thanks, but no thanks. And some like, you know, PR PR flimflam job where you're hiring your buddies to to kind of burnish the reputation of the oil and gas industry abroad is just it's it's a it's a bandage on a it's a bandage on a bullet wound you know what I mean yeah it's it's magical thinking as you described it in our write up the other day uh, it's uh, I mean there are efforts that are meant to trick voters basically uh, they are uh, intended to give the impression of the government having some control or some ability to solve these problems the government doesn't though. Uh, the government does not control the price of oil. The government does not control demand for oil. The government does not control the effects that carbon dioxide and methane have on global climate. Like, there are no levers to pull here. Uh, Alberta governments would be much better served focusing inward, uh, working on increasing the efficiency of the province itself by you know, fixing our crumbling infrastructure by properly funding programs and services, by dealing with the massive inequality and poverty issues here. Uh, but they don't want to do that, I guess, because it uh, it's hard and it costs money. And they know that they can get away with appearing as the champions of the oil and gas industry uh, with a lot of people, even if they're not actually getting anything done. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I don't have any good segue for this final set, uh, final section, but it is, um, you know, we had to read a bunch of bullshit and, and in order to pull this podcast together and, and part of that involved, um, bad budget takes, bad budget takes by people who we don't agree with or that are just outright venal or dumb. And, uh, I want to start off this bad budget takes part of the pod by talking about just how much the billionaire class loves Jason Kenney's budget. <laughs> the Business Council of Alberta, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with the Business Council of Canada, you should really read um, Martin Lukacs's book on Justin Trudeau. Uh, is this business council model is this incredibly powerful uh, way that kind of capital gets what it gets what it wants? And uh, yes, here's the, here's the tweet from the Business Council of Alberta. 
Provincial budget builds bridge over troubled waters. Budget strikes the right balance for the moment with focus on vaccination, economic recovery, and beginning the path to fiscal sustainability. <laughs> so, you know, this is the type of organization where you know that if they're saying something good about the budget, the budget is shit. I yeah, mean, these, like Nancy Southern, these Chamber Nancy of Commerce uh, business rep groups, they are almost entirely composed of e- evil people with evil goals. You, you should be extremely skeptical whenever they say anything is good. Yeah. And when I'm talking about billionaires, like I am talking about like the Southern family and, and Nancy Southern and the Mannixes and the, uh, Murray Edwards and all of the like terrible, terrible people who have, who have kind of wrung out Berta dry in order to make their fortunes. But uh, there's more. Don't worry. There's a lot more <laughs> budget, bad budget takes. Um, up next, we have Kyle Bax uh, of the CBC with business analysis. And this is kind of a, a very classic dumb journalism trope story. The, the headline here is Alberta's debt soars past 100 billion, stoking angst in government ranks. That uh, angst in government ranks, that actually sounds quite nice to say out loud. But uh, but this is just classic That's my new, dumb journalism. Uh, my new band name. Yeah, this is classic, classic dumb journalist shit, right? Lead with a big number about debt and then interview a schmuck like Drew Barnes who will say, yes, he's very disappointed. $100 billion is a lot of money. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Like, of course, of course, the deficit and the debt are uh, up this year and we're up last year. We were hit by an incredibly damaging pandemic. Uh, Dealing with a horrible pandemic costs money. Like that's, there was no way around it. There was no way to get through all of this pen, all of this stuff, even if we had not waffled around and, and completely fucked up the response like the UCP did. It was still going to shut down commerce for quite a while. It was still going to depress, you know, consumer demand and tax revenue and all of those kind of things for quite a while. It was still going to cost quite a lot of money to provide healthcare for all of the people who were infected by COVID. And so, yes, yeah, we had to spend a fucking ton of money dealing with the pandemic. That's what happens. That doesn't mean that uh, there is a horrible kind of structural problem with uh, Alberta's books that demands huge austerity measures. Yeah, money isn't real, and like a hundred billion dollar debt does not affect you in any way. So don't ne- just never pay no mind. It will literally never affect you. Don't think about it. Think about <laughs> your meals, your family, your friends, your job, your future, your education. But some like number in a spreadsheet somewhere. It's never going to have a material effect on your life. Or if it does, it's down the road. There's, and it's not there's like a, there's a, theor- there's a theoretical point at which it becomes a problem. Yeah, but Alberta's like not service, close to Debt that. servicing payments. I mean, if, if we- if Alberta, we Alberta's not close to that danger zone. We're not. Though. We are not. Even, even if COVID were to continue for another year, we would not be in the danger zone. Uh, Alberta's debt per GDP ratio is, is pretty much in line with other provinces and no, other lower. western We're still in great shape. We're still in great shape relative to other provinces. And I mean so there's there's really no reason to be uh throwing your arms up about the debt or the deficit. I think that um a lot of writers and reporters go with that because it's a very simplistic uh mode of analysis that a lot of readers get, you know, yeah. they they think, "Oh, well, Big number if bad. my household budget was was short, $1,000 every month, then I would know that I had a big problem. But uh, your household does not have limitless access to credit like a government does. Or the ability to raise revenue through taxes. 
you know? Yes. Like, yes. I mean, you could, you could tell your kids to go get a part-time job, but that's not, uh, you, you can't be like, uh, you can't go down to the McDonald's at the corner of your street and be like, listen, you need to start chipping in more for my household. <laughs> the province on the other hand can do that. It's, it's lazy journalism, right? And it's, and it's just dog shit neo-lib politics at the end of the day too. Like this, this third last paragraph in the piece could literally be a cut and paste from like a news story in the nineties. Uh, like, Try not to roll your eyes through your head. Here's the quote. With each passing year the province runs a deficit, it will likely become more difficult to dig its way out. The borrowing costs the province will have to pay each year on its debt are expected to keep rising, and experts warn that that expense could climb even more if interest rates begin to rise. Like, like X that out. That That is not analysis. That is not anything that, that like literally matters. Fuck you. Money that's in the provincial debt or money that's in the provincial deficit, those are bills for things that we got. Those are things that we pay that we paid for. Uh, you you shouldn't look at a deficit and uh, assume that it's this like demonic, pernicious thing that that uh, no responsible government can ever run a deficit. No, that's that's not true at all. That's that's evidence that there was some need to be met, and we paid for it. And some of those payments have been deferred to the future. Because like anyone who goes out and buys something expensive, uh, it's easier to space it out over a while than to pay a lump sum. Exactly. And and this article also brings up something that is not in the quote, but for some reason, pundits really are trying to make happen, and that is a sales tax. And Don Braid, uh, scab at the, at the Calgary Herald, uh, took his column, his budget column, really, really thinks he's found something here. He, he, you know, he writes this very same bog standard column about that very similar to Kyle Bax's thing about full of big debt and deficit numbers and about how, oh, Jason Kenny, you know, he hates debts and deficits, but here he is having to do it. Um, but then he takes some innocuous line from Taves about some third party review of Alberta's revenue structure. And all of a sudden he's sure that Alberta is getting a sales tax. Let me just say right now, uh, under Jason Kenny, Alberta is not getting a sales tax. It seems pretty unlikely to me. And when I hear language about revenue efficiency from Taves, uh, what, what I hear there is not a proposal to tax shift to a consumption tax, like a sales tax. What I hear there is a tax shift of, away from business and corporate taxes, because that's the, uh, the argument that we generally get for cuts to those taxes is that, well, they're an inefficient revenue source. Yeah, or a flat tax. But, you like, know, I could see this this uh, this third party review be like, oh, you know what's great? A flat tax. We love flat taxes. We're fucking yeah. idiots. <sighs> or or them saying, you know, um, uh, things like income taxes uh, or um, premiums, uh, like healthcare, oh, premiums, healthcare premiums, which is yeah. essentially which is essentially a flat tax. Those next three uh, that those need to come love in. healthcare premiums. Sorry, you can go ahead. Well, when you when you hear words like uh, efficiency around revenue structures uh, from the right, that is a code word for corporate tax cuts, yeah. Because they they believe that corporate tax cuts are um, they are unacceptable because they are an inefficient revenue source uh, because the they put more of a drag on the economy than uh, taxing people at the bottom. Basically, the the flip side though is that uh, even though taxing wealthy folks and their corporations is sometimes not as efficient 
as squeezing the money out of people down at the bottom. It's morally more correct, you know, the, the, um, and it, it removes more inequality. So you could chase after efficiency as your metric for your, your tax structure over, you know, constantly and end up with a situation where you have terrible, terrible wealth inequality in your province because you know, the rich people have all successfully made this case that, oh, it's, it's not efficient to take my money. You need to go take it from workers instead. You, you know, it'll, it'll be better off for you that way. Efficiency, though, is not the only concern. Equity is also a very important concern. Inequality is also a very important concern. A sales tax in Alberta, even if it did happen, would have some serious issues to it. And you could get around a lot of them by offering rebates uh, like the federal government does, but then that cuts into the amount that you can generate from them. Exactly. That being said, uh, it's all pie in the sky because you're absolutely right that Jason Kenney has no stomach for bringing in yeah, a sales never going to happen. Sorry, folks. He absolutely will refuse to do it. And I think what he would prefer the situation would be is that the um, he kind of struggles to meet balance, but keeps publicly refusing to do sales tax. And so the all of these columns from uh, kind of centrist wonks convince Notley's people that it's a smart idea to campaign on a sales tax, which is one of the ways that Kenny could actually uh, get reelected in the next election, despite his great unpopularity, is if he tricks Rachel Notley and the NDP into campaigning on a sales tax. They absolutely should not do that. What they should campaign on is uh, bringing back the corporate tax levels that we had before the UCP came in. Uh, I mean, hold on. I mean, we, all, we would almost have no, uh, no deficit issue if corporate taxes were back up to those levels. I mean, this podcast does not make a habit of providing political advice to the NDP uh, for two big reasons. One, we're like dummies and I don't read any books and whatever my political analysis and advice isn't worth very much. Uh, but two, uh, it's also done by de- better and smarter people than us, but two, they also don't listen. Uh, the NDP yes, does not listen to what we say. So they, they don't, they don't give a shit to what but they I, we I mean, say. In fact, the fact that we have suggested these things today probably makes them less likely to happen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the, the fact that we have suggested that Rachel Notley should not be tricked into campaigning <laughs> on a sales tax means we're absolutely going to get flyers from the NDP about a sales tax in a few months. <laughs> but I am breaking this, this self-imposed rule we have about not giving political advice to the NDP on the matter of messaging around this budget, specifically messaging around debt and deficits. Just like how Jason Kenney is not credible when he talks about how much he loves funding healthcare, the NDP is just never going to be credible talking about debt and deficits. Don't talk about debt and debt. Like, I don't care. The hypocrisy shit does not matter. Hypocrisy does not matter to their base. But there's this tweet from Kathleen Ganley. It had like 1,800 likes. It's like, it was, what was it? What did it say? In the, here's what it said. Quote, in the 2019 election, Kenny threatened Alberta. If you vote NDP, you'll have $96 billion in debt by 2023. Instead, he delivered $100 billion in debt already. Huge cuts of services and a corporate handout that created no jobs. Scare quotes, fiscal conservatism. They need to stop it. They need to stop mentioning the debt. They need to stop mentioning the deficit. Just uh, like the problem that they ran into, if you will remember uh, back in the pipeline theater days, when NDP comms basically trapped them and then they had to become pipeline crusaders, they're they're locking themselves into uh, the enemy's frame here. And by continuing to 
harp on about debt and deficit, they are amplifying those frames too, uh, which is going to just give cover to the conservatives to inflict more austerity on us. The NDP need to stick to talking about like non-obfuscated, not nebulous things. They need to talk about the real material conditions that are affecting working people here in the province. Exactly. And I think that's a good place to leave it. I don't think we need to belabor the point. NDP, you're not the party of debt and deficits. Stop talking about debt and deficits. Talk about healthcare. Talk about jobs. Uh, That's it. That's our hour on the budget. There's a lot in there. We produced a couple of pieces on it. Uh, If if there's more out there that we've missed, um, we definitely want to know about it. So please get a hold of us on Twitter via email. I'm very easy to reach uh, at Duncan Kinney on Twitter. I'm uh, reachable by email at at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Jim, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I mean, you could DM me on Twitter, I suppose. I'm uh, not quite as responsive as Duncan is, but sometimes I'm up for a chat. Uh, I'm Jim Story on Twitter, the uh, the ketchup bottle icon, so you can follow me there. Ketchup man. And I was actually just going through our monthly donors. Uh, we we ran a couple. We ran a big campaign in December. We ran a campaign in January. We asked people to help us out. And uh, a lot of you responded. We have 444 current monthly donors. I know that's a little different from what's on the Progress Report patrons page, but there are legacy donors from uh, the Progress Alberta site that are also monthly donors. I won't get into the details. But anyways, latest data, 444 people decided that we are worth it, that we are worth 5 10 15 sometimes 20 or $50 a month. And we are incredibly grateful for the people who do give us uh, that those contributions. They are incredibly important for Jim and I for our continued existence. And I just want to thank all of the people who uh, who do that. And if you listen to this pod, you made it all the way to the end and you're making it to this, uh, this pitch. Uh, I think if you get value out of this podcast, if you get value out of the content that we produce on the progressreport.ca, go, go to the, the progressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and become a monthly donor. If that doesn't work for you, if you can't donate, we get it. At times are tough. Um, but, um, you know, if you have the means, we would really appreciate the help. Absolutely. We'd be, we'd be super grateful. It's not just for me and Duncan, too. Uh, we do have quite a few freelance contributors uh, to the report these days. It's really important to us that we compensate people fairly. We don't want to be one of those nonprofits that uh, ignores its principles and screws people. And we want to give a leg up to people who don't have an easy in to Canada's media landscape. You know, there are a lot of uh, outlets out there that are not very into supporting people who are speaking from the left or people who are speaking from uh, like an anti-colonial or anti-capitalist perspective. Uh, we would like to give people a leg up so that they can also get their um, get their voice out there so that they can have a platform so that they can start building a portfolio, getting their career underway. So please uh, help us help our folks. And pitch us. If, you, if there's a story that needs to be told, please get a hold of Jim or I. Give us a pitch. We'll see if it works. Absolutely. Duncan's very receptive to pitches. Send him an email. <laughs> the, thanks so much to Jim for coming on. Thanks uh, to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.